I may have uh, missed a... I have. I'll go back. So we're on to a four-part series on prophecies. And this is really uh, the final... Including this one, there's five more before we really get to the end of our discipleship series. Uh, and then we go on to a, uh, a sort of retelling uh, of what the disciples did and how they really implemented all the things we've been learning this year. Uh, and so what we're left with now is kind of uh, five more. Uh, the one after this uh, is the Tim, is the 222 principle. And I'm going to leave that with you and you can look it up somewhere and I will come to that in five weeks' time. Uh, but this one, these next four... Uh, are the prophecies, so we're going to talk about the rapture, the judgments, the resurrections, and the second coming. Uh, and these, these prophecies we have to be really careful about because uh, we can get so tied up in the prophecies uh, that what happens is we use them as a way to scare people. Uh, and that's maybe how some people are driven to God. And actually that's not really what these are for at all. Actually these are kind of a part, another part of our faith in Jesus. These are another part of our relationship with him. And actually... Uh, whilst all true and all quite scary in some respects, uh, ultimately they're really encouraging uh, to see that Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to do all sorts of things here on earth and all sorts of troubles are going to occur which will all go through as well. Uh, so this is where we are today and this is uh, the rapture. And uh, there are many, I say many, there are probably three main theories about what this means, what the rapture means. You'll find it in, as I'll go through, uh, Thessalonians and a number of different verses. And I, I need to be clear on this. There's, I'm not preaching from a preferred theology. Uh, that is to say that I'll give you three different theories about what the rapture is, uh, but hopefully all well-balanced uh, and ultimately with uh, a reason, what, what are they for? Why do I need to know about all these different theories? Uh, and that won't be to choose which one. Uh, it'll be to truly understand why we need to know about this stuff in the first place. So let's get on with um, the rapture and understand what it is. We're starting this, these verses, uh, kind of holds it all together. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. And it's, uh, the rapture is, is this event where God takes his people. The event is, des is described in a couple of places in the Bible, but uh, here is where we'll look at And it says this. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed by those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we, are, we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I hope you saw the very deliberate song choice this morning. Uh, all about the uh, encouragement of Jesus, of course, that he overcame, uh, but that sense of just that, what's going to happen, and what's the revelation, what's this second coming, what's all going to happen in these end times. And so believers who have died will be resurrected, it says. Believers who are still alive at the time of the rapture will be given new bodies. And the rapture involves this 
instance, instant, instant transformation, instant transformation of our bodies to live in eternity. Uh, we won't live in eternity in these bodies uh, when we go into heaven. Uh, and it will be, I can't describe what that body is because there's not a lot that really says anything about the bodies, but uh, we can know it won't be full of pain. We can know it won't hurt. We can know that uh, these bodies are decaying because they're part of the world. Uh, and so I'll get on to that, how uh, this sense of we're kind of here temporarily, and I've done this before, haven't I? I've said about how this is our temporary home, and we'll talk about that again today as well, how that feeds into uh, rapture and, and all these things about prophecy. But let's take a little detour before we go on. Because I think what these verses bring out is this issue uh, that maybe people might get might uh, question in this particular set of verses. And it's the people that have died being given new bodies at this point of Christ's return. So the question is, what has happened to those who have died? Are they waiting for the second coming of Jesus or have they gone to their final destination already? It's an interesting question, isn't it? We need to know what does God say about this because we've just read here actually that they won't go until, until rapture. Or is it? Let's have a look. I think it's an important question to answer before we continue. What you'll see on sometimes um, in cemeteries, on, on tombstones, wherever, uh, you'll see the word something like they fell asleep at, they went to sleep at a certain time, a certain date. And actually this is quite biblical. It's, a, it's quite a biblical term to use because actually people, uh, as Jesus describes, as we'll see, uh, talks about people falling asleep. This sense of, of dying. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14. We just said, we just saw. Uh, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. This is a reference to Christians who have died. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 to 18 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Again, talking about this, this principle of people sleeping, meaning to die. But does that mean that people have died uh, are in some form in a temporary unconsciousness, in a thousand-year state where they kind of are in the middle somewhere between the two? I, I don't believe that. I don't think Scripture points to that. I think Scripture really tells us that people are in this kind of limbo place. I don't think that really works in Scripture. And Scripture doesn't really mention that either. And we'll see this in two pieces of Scripture here. Philippians 1, 21 to 23, it says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, which is better by far. This is an interesting verse. Paul contemplates dying and he says, I want to be with Jesus. Now if we take the concept that potentially uh, some people believe that there is a place you go to and wait, surely Paul would not be talking about a place where you kind of just hang around for a little while or for a thousand years. If he's saying, I... I've got to choose between whether I stay in this body and carry on doing the work of Jesus or I die and go and meet him. 
There is no mention here of a place where he says, I'll die and I'll wait until the rapture. He says he dies and he'll go to meet him when he dies. When Paul contemplates his own dying, he calls it gain. He gains from dying. Did you gain from being in a place of limbo, of, of nothingness, or waiting rooms, or whatever you want to call it? I don't think Paul is describing gain as a waiting room. Gain cannot be a description of a blankless, zero conscious time where we wait until the second coming of Christ. Instead, he goes into the presence of Christ in a more intimate way, and it is, he says, vastly better than anything he has known or will know here. Then we have 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 9. He says, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Clear definition here. Yeah? If we are in the body, we're away from him in the sense that we're not with him in heaven. You understand? It's not that we're not, not with him now through the Holy Spirit, obviously. But... Whilst we're in these bodies, we're away from his home, where he is in heaven. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Again, no mention of a place of limbo, no place of a blankless consciousness. I prefer to be away from this decaying body and with Jesus. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. Paul says here, dying in the body means going to be home, at home with the Lord. And there is a home here. We're at home as well. It's not a permanent home. This is not the place where we'll be forever. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. For the believer who trusts in Jesus Christ, Christ's blood and righteousness have removed the condemnation for every believer and secured for us both the final resurrection of the body in a new he heaven and a new earth and now after death, an intimate experience of being in Christ's presence between death and resurrection. Just needed to bring that answer to that question, whether you worry about loved ones, whether you know people that have died, where are they? They're believers maybe and you think, what happens now then? I've heard of this resurrection stuff. I've heard of all the, the things that are going to happen, but what about the people that have died? I hope I've answered the question. Actually, people are with Jesus right now. Maybe there's another place they, they are with Jesus in, uh, when we all go to, to meet him in the air, but I want to say this, they're not in a blankless place. They're not in a place that's just a waiting room. They're with the Lord. Scripture tells us, if you die, you're with the Lord. Scripture is clear. But let's rejoin our main root, uh, main learning of what we're going to talk about, what we're looking at today, uh, about the rapture. And in particular, we need to look at tribulation. What is tribulation? The tribulation is a future seven-year period of time when God will finish his dis discipline of Israel and finalize his judgment of the unbelieving world. The tribulation is referred to by other names. Uh, the day of the Lord the great tribulation, or the time or day of trouble. So this tribulation is this seven-year period in the end times in which humanity's decadence and depravity will reach its fullness. And then with God judging accordingly. 
And now there's a whole lot more to go into about tribulation period, but this message is really focused on the rapture. What is the rapture? What does it mean? What are we trying to understand? But it's good to know uh, that the rapture occurs, whether, however you believe it to occur, within the tribulation or outside of the tribulation period. And I'll go into all the, different, the three different theories. And these are not things that we're going to use to go, I'm going to go and tell other people about this, this stuff. Right? Here's what people, theologians, people think about, talk about when they study the word, when they get really into the word. These are the things they really get into. And it's just of interest rather than something you've got to believe. And I call these uh, theories uh, open hand. Whether you believe in one or the other, uh, you're not um, a heretic, you're not against God, you're not in any way uh, a non-believer. They're just things of ways we might perceive the Bible. Uh, And let me say this, and I'll say this towards the end as well. When it happens, the last thing you're going to worry about is what theory you believed in. Yeah? So let's put it into context. It doesn't matter what theory you believe in. We'll speak of the three main things at the end about what we need to know about the truth of the word and what God says about the rapture. So there's these three uh, theories primarily. And the first one, I'll put them all there. I'll do it one at a time. Pre-tribulationism. There's a nice long word to try and say. Pre-tribulationism. What does this teach? What, a, what does this say about tribulation, the seven-year period? This teaches that the rapture occurs before the seven-year period starts, before the, the, the kind of pain and mess all kind of starts kicking off and we get the end times. It's before the seven-year tribulation where God judges accordingly. The rapture saying will occur before that time. So at that time, the church will meet Christ in the air and then sometime after, the Antichrist is revealed and tribulation begins. This is one theory. In other words, the rapture and Christ's second coming to set up his kingdom are separated by at least seven years. And according to this view, the church does not experience any of the tribulation. And it would be terrible of me not to give you supporting verses for each of these theories so they all get a fair hearing and show that I'm not being biased in any of them. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This uh, verse is used to say, that means that at the time before, before the, all the, the seven-year tribulation, the, and especially after the three and a half years where it just goes crazy, I mean, even worse than the first three and a half, They're saying, well, God's people will be raptured, taken up to heaven, because they won't experience wrath, because God says here, or the Bible says here, that God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not appointed to wrath, it's not appointed to suffer uh, the tribulation. But more pointedly, there's a verse in Revelation that supports the theory that we'll be raptured to heaven before the coming tribulation. Revelation 3 verse 10 says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Another supporting uh, piece of scripture that says we're going to be raptured, taken to heaven to meet Jesus uh, before the seven-year tribulation occurs. 
Then there's a second theory, mid-tribulationism. I think you see where this is going, don't you? Pre, mid, post. Mid-tribulationism. What does that mean? Why do these theologians come up with these things? It teaches that the rapture occurs at the midpoint of tribulation. That is the three and a half years into the seven years. So three and a half years into the tribulation period, rapture occurs. We're taken up to see Jesus. And at that time, the seventh trumpet sounds, the church will meet Christ in the air, and then the, and the bow judgments are poured upon the earth in a time known as the Great Tribulation. The rapture and Christ's second coming to set up the kingdom are separated by a period of three and a half years. So according to this view, the church goes through the first half of the tribulation, but is spared the worst of the tribulation in the last three years, three and a half years. So we kind of go through a little bit, and then before the, it really takes hold, we are taken up in the air to meet Jesus. And I hear you say, what's the support in Scripture that supports this theory, Colin? 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1 to 3, says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and their being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, certain that the day of the Lord has already come, do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So, of course, here, using this verse uh, to say that it's already come, and then there's a period halfway in between that to say that's your rapture halfway through. The day of the Lord has already come. So the order of these events, as it says here, is, is firstly a revolt, then the revelation of the Antichrist, and then the day of Christ. This view teaches that the Antichrist will not be uh, decisively revealed until the abomination that causes desolation, which occurs at the midpoint of the seven-year period. So you see why, actually, they're saying here, halfway through, that's when the Antichrist really takes hold, and he is revealed, and then the work of the Antichrist really kicks in. They're saying, but just before the terrible, terrible part, we're all taken to meet Jesus in the air. Another verse, Daniel 7, verse 25. says, he will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. You see where the mid-tribulation theory is coming in? There's a little calculation being done here. Times and a half a time. And it also mentions holy people, so it's also suggesting here that up to the midpoint, <clears throat> God's people will still be on earth. God's people will still be here, experience some part of the seven-year tribulation. It says the Antichrist will have power over the saints for three and a half years. It assumes this is the first half of the tribulation and the saints spoken of are the church. The holy people, it suggests, are the church. It interprets the day of Christ as the rapture and therefore the church will not, will not be caught up into heaven until the Antichrist is revealed. Okay. Then post-tribulationism. This teaches that the rapture occurs at the end. 
This teaches that as a church, as Christians, we will go through the entire seven-year period of, of, of just war and famine, all sorts of terrible things. We'll go through the whole time of the ruling of the Antichrist on earth. And at the end, or near the end of the tribulation, at that time the church will meet Christ in the end, then return to earth for the commencement of Christ's kingdom on earth. So the rapture and Christ's second coming happens almost at the same time. I told you you're going to have to really try and get to grips with this. To, you need to know at least the theories. And then we'll move into why you need to know the theories. So according to this view, the church goes through the entire seven-year tribulation. To support this theory, it's mentioned in the Bible that Jesus says he'll return after a great tribulation. Matthew 24, verse 29 says, Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. The book of Revelation, with all its various prophecies, mentions only one coming of the Lord and that occurs after tribulation. It says here in Revelation, uh, Revelation 13, verse 7, It was given power to wage war against God's holy people, and to conquer them. You see where they're getting their theory from, right? Holy people are still present, and they're still being ruled, and even to the point of being conquered. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. It says here, there'll obviously be the church, the saints, that still be around during this time. So believing that Christians will still be present during the whole of tribulation, and then a final verse, just to give you some idea of this final uh, theory. It says, 1 Peter 4, 16-19, However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator, continue to do good. It really claims that God's promise to keep us from an hour of trial probably doesn't mean we are taken out of the world, but rather that God will keep us from the faith-destroying effects of the hour of trial, rather that he'll provide protection during that time instead of us being taken up or raptured. He will guard us, he'll protect our faith. That's the three theories. What do we believe? We could spend a month or two going through all these theories in great detail, but I think that would be dangerous. I think it's very dangerous to start talking about theories to the point where they become beliefs in themselves. I don't think any Christian is strong enough to avoid getting pulled into theories about what the Bible teaches so much so that theories become our new master in our faith, that they rule us every day. The Bible does not give an explicit timeline concerning future events. Scripture does not explicitly teach one view over another. And that's why we have this diversity of opinion concerning the end times and some variety on how, it, uh, is related, how the related prophecies come about. But I think last... Last thing uh, we'd want to do, I think you'd all agree with this, 
is getting so lost in debating theories of one another that when the day comes, we're so lost in them that we didn't do what Jesus commanded us to do. That what I said at the start was we're so fearful of the theories and of the day itself that that scared us into faith. And that shouldn't be used in that way. It shouldn't be used to scare people into faith. The fear of God is not this, the fear that I'm talking about here. That is just scaring people. Jesus is more than these end-time prophecies. We spend the rest of our lives in relationship with him. So these are a part of our relationship with him, but they're not the whole. And they should prompt us into action. They should prompt us into how we live our life, how do we speak to people, the urgency with which uh, we want to see loved ones, we want to see friends, we want to see people just around us in the neighbourhood come to know Jesus. So instead we need to stay with what the Bible says. And there is absolutely room and time for correction amongst brothers and sisters in love. There is time for equipping and encouraging each other in the word. And that's what we're doing today. That's what we do every Sunday. Equipping, encouraging. Making sure that on the day we meet him, we're actually prepared to meet him and not giving Jesus a reason to say, righteously, go away from me, I never knew you. When I say don't give Jesus, I'm not saying it disrespectfully, but he has every reason to say, go away from me, I never knew you, if we was not living in him. If we're not living for him, he has every right to say he's the king that we worship, who's on the throne. He has every right to say, go away from me, I never knew you. But let's not give Jesus a reason to say that to us. Make him aware of you. And that's just doing as he asked, as he commanded. Serve Jesus. Everything you do, in everything you do, make it about Jesus. So this is what we should believe and should be getting prepared for. There is, coming, uh, there is coming a time of great tribulation such as the world has never seen. There is a time coming when that will happen. Secondly, after the tribulation, Christ will return to establish his kingdom on earth. We know that. That's going to happen. Thirdly, there will be a rapture, a catching away from morality, mortality to immortality for believers. And as we kind of bring this message to an end today, I want us to focus on, these, these, uh, on Scripture to bring it home a little bit, rather than saying, let's have a look at the theories. I've given you the theories. The facts are that these things are going to happen. In what order they happen is actually kind of irrelevant. Are you ready for Jesus when he comes back? Are you getting ready for him? Because he's coming. Let me read this Revelation in Revelation 22. He says, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. 
Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. We need to strike a balance between reading and gaining knowledge of the Bible, getting the word into our heads, but then it needs to go from our heads into our hearts. It needs to be a love for the word. It needs to be a recognition that there are simple facts in the Bible that are all true. And we can debate all day long about how and where that might happen. We can talk about all the revelations in Daniel. We can talk about all those things. But let me be clear that the Bible says this is guaranteed to happen. Jesus is coming. And it's not to scare you. It's to get us all ready. Are we ready? And are we readying ourselves for his return? I'm going to pray and we're going to finish with the blessing. Father, we just want to thank you that we can trust every single word in your word. That we can pick up a Bible here in this place, certainly, and in this country, in this church, and read it without fear of persecution. And Lord, we do recognize that there may be moments of persecution for us in, in different ways. Different ways to other people who are oppressed because they believe in you, who cannot meet because they believe in you, who live in fear of authorities because they believe in you. And Lord, that all being said, the day is coming when we'll all have to say whether we believe in you or not whether what we've been doing here is all for Jesus. And Lord, I just want to thank you that we do have grace. Just read in those last verses, Lord, in, the, in Revelation, that I can come to you, I can say those words, and I will be accepted into the kingdom. Lord, even in the last words of Revelation, it's almost like you're begging, please, just come. Just say, I'm your Lord. Oh, Lord, right to the end you want us. Right to the end you want us to come to you. How amazing is that grace? How amazing is that grace that works in this place right now, in this world? That we have the opportunity to acknowledge and amen that Jesus is Lord. Lord, will you show us in the right way through your Holy Spirit how we can use this to grow, to mature, to be the disciples you want us to be. Father, we thank you for the relationship we have with you, that you have set the example. And Lord, we will and continue to try to set the same example to those around us. To love as much as we can in our broken world. In our minds that are still tied up with trying to battle the enemy. Lord, help us and clear our minds in the moments where we've been asked the question, does Jesus exist? Is he real? Is there a God? Where am I going? Oh Lord, ready us for being messengers of the gospel. Thank you, Lord.
Amen.